right, all right. Welcome to the Cabot Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, we will be joined by retired Admiral Bill Moran. The former Vice Chief of Naval Operations and Chief of Naval Personnel talks about fleet manning, how to better use technology when recruiting, training, and retaining sailors, and gives his views on lessons learned from the Russo-Ukrainian conflict and how the U.S. Navy stacks up against their competitors in the Chinese Navy. But first, some naval news from around the world. The carrier USS Harry S. Truman returned to her home port of Norfolk, Virginia, September 12th after a nine-month deployment with Carrier Air Wing 1 to the European Theater of Command. Truman spent virtually the entire cruise operating around the Central Mediterranean Sea in response to Russia's February invasion of Ukraine. Also on September 12th, but in the Pacific, the carrier USS Ronald Reagan left Yokosuka, Japan to continue a regional cruise that began in May. The carrier had paused for about three weeks beginning on August 19th before getting underway again to operate with carrier Air Wing 5. NATO's exercise Dynamic Mariner began September 11th in the Aegean Sea near Turkey, as well as in the Sea of Marmara. The crisis response exercise is coordinated with the Turkish exercise Mavi Balina, and includes 50 warships, five submarines, and five aircraft from 12 NATO countries. Belgium, Bulgaria, Canada, France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Poland, Romania, Spain, Turkey, and the United States. A major goal of the exercise is to test NATO's maritime response forces. And the USS Coronado LCS-4 was decommissioned September 14th in a ceremony at San Diego after a service life of just over eight years. The second of the independence class of littoral combat ships, Coronado carried out just one Western Pacific deployment during her career. After entering service in 2014, the Navy often referred to the Coronado and the first-in-class independence as prototype vessels, and subsequent ships in the class incorporated numerous changes. Coronado now joins her sister ship Independence, decommissioned in July 2021, in the reserve fleet at Bremerton, Washington. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. All right. Moving to our discussion portion, we are very lucky to welcome friend of the pod, retired Admiral Bill Moran. Admiral Moran retired in 2019 as the Vice Chief of Naval Operations and was the Chief of Naval Personnel just prior to being VCNO. Today, he is a strategic advisor for several companies, a board member at the U.S. Naval Institute, and is the founder and president of WFM Advisors Admiral, thank you for joining us. Hey, Chris. Happy to be here. Good to see everyone. Sir, uh, in your last two jobs in uniform, you were an outspoken advocate for modernizing how the Navy recruits, trains, and retains sailors. Um, and we've talked about it on this show, but you know, it's no, I, I guess it's no mystery to um, our audience that what's unique about the Navy is that it crews platforms, vice kitting out its people. So that, that makes um, the challenge for the Navy a little bit different than the other services. Uh, you know, without the right number uh, and without the right talent level uh, of people, those platforms, um, you know, their performance can suffer. So crew numbers often have a strategic impact. The first question I have is, you know, the, the manifestation of the work that you and the team 
pushed while you were to, while you were N1 and then when you were on the OpNav staff was known as Sailor 2025. You began that work eight years ago. Um, let's start the conversation by talking about kind of the biggest people challenge that you had as VCNO and N1, and that was gaps at sea. Essentially, it's about do you have the right number and the right type of sailors where they need to be in the in the fleet? Can you talk a little bit about that challenge when you first took over as the the N1 and and kind of how that's evolved over the last couple of years, just so the audience gets a baseline, and then we can kind of talk about how you went after it and maybe where the Navy is today. Yeah, sure. I think Gaps at Sea is a great place to start the conversation. Uh, I remember my first meeting when I knew I was going to be the chief naval personnel. I hadn't been confirmed yet, but but I was in a meeting in the Pentagon and the fleet commander from Norfolk was in that room and he was very emphatic about uh, the fleet was going to take over fleet manning because we couldn't get it right in Washington. And uh, and he was specifically targeting gaps at sea. I forget what the number was, but it was roughly 16,000 gaps at sea at the time. Uh, and I, I thought to myself, well, that's not a good place to start this job when the fleet's doing my job for me. So uh, one of the first calls I made after assuming the role was to Norfolk. And I, I asked him to give me a chance to get my arms around this. Uh, the fleet shouldn't have to do this work. We should be doing it. Uh, you're our customer, so on and so forth. So we agreed and uh, we got we got hard to work back in, in N1. And uh, the hardest thing to come up with was reliable data uh, about precisely how many gaps there were, where they were, how they were being generated. What are we doing about it? How do we speed it up? All of those sorts of things were uh, first order of business. And as it turned out, the data was not very, as common vernacular today, authoritative. So bottom line is we didn't have a good site picture and it became very evident very quickly that we needed to update how we were tracking these gaps at sea. So we had reliable and accurate information so that we could talk to the fleet uh, uh, in in turn on terms that were agreeable on both sides of what what the data was telling us. Those gaps really end up being the I guess the driver or the demand signal for how many sailors you bring in, how you do their training, you know when and where they go. If you don't have your arms around that, it kind of makes the rest of that job difficult. This remains a problem today for the Navy, do, does it not? Um, be, because of the lack of that um, that authoritative data, um, and and it kind of manifests itself as a as a war fighting issue. Yeah, uh, I mean, just to be clear, and not not to uh, mess with 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 what actually drives what, but the the requirement for the number of people in the Navy is driven off of platforms. To your point earlier, that we man platforms and and equip or man platforms we don't equip people so much and and so when you add up squadrons of airplanes submarine ships all of those platforms uh, you come up with a number of people along uh, with all of the seashore rotation uh, calculus that goes into it and you end up with a figure of let's say 300,000 sailors the there's an acceptable level of what we call friction inside of that that accounts for all of the sailors that are in between duty stations rotating 
leaving the Navy, coming into the Navy, and then, of course, all the training pipelines that are resident within all of that movement. Uh, we, never, we never buy all of that friction so that there is no friction in the system. Uh, and Congress is uh, as much to do about this as, as, as the Navy can afford to do it. And the number is never enough to completely erase the friction. So you have to really be more efficient inside of all of those pipelines of recruiting, training from street to fleet, and then all the training that occurs in between duty stations uh, going from one platform to another, for example. Uh, so that, that's really, as you can imagine, it's, it's a complex system that's trying to track people in every one of those bins. And uh, when those systems don't necessarily talk to each other uh, in, a, in a mechanical way, data to data, uh, you've got a lot of human intervention that comes in play. Who diaries who on? When do they diary them on? Is the duty office doing it? Is the uh, PSD doing it back in those days? All of those people, all of those places have people that are, are uh, accounting for where, P other, where sailors are and you end up with uh, a lot of error. Uh, not intentional, it just, it is human error in this business. And then what we thought we needed to do was modernize the technology to eliminate that kind of uncertainty in the data so we can have a better picture. I'll ask one more and then I'll throw it to, to my partner, Chris. Um, buying data or buying systems that um, enable you to track data, uh, the, the Navy and DOD and Congress are not really good at this, right? I mean, we, we certainly see that and we, we saw that in the manpower world. We see it in you know, some of the AI discussions. I mean, the system is really designed to buy ships and aircraft and, and other things. Buying software is sometimes a, a lot harder. What's the, I guess, the long-term, short-term, you, you know, what, what is the effect of uh, a system that's not able to quickly buy these types of uh you know, decision-making tools in the way of software, you know, whether it's for N1 or whether it's for anywhere else. I mean, how, how does that hinder your, the job of the senior leader to, you know, to go after some of these problems? Well, you described precisely how it hinders you is it slows you down. It, uh, you can't make as much progress as fast as you would like, uh, you know, trying to modernize your IT and mo modernizing the software that runs that runs uh, resident on that IT, and then how do you how do you uh, take the data that is uh, available in so many different stovepipes of activity and making it work together so that you can develop a really bright picture is a big big challenge. N one, for example, uh, when when I came in, we estimated roughly sixty databases that running the N one organization, and that's all you know the entire domain Netsy recruiting command, all of Millington, and then all the headquarters staffing, uh, 60 different databases. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them couldn't share across their IT systems. Uh, no kidding, and it's, I, I hate to say it, but there's probably still some of this truth out there today. We have software that was written in Cobalt and Fortran, and it the only good news about that was that most secure uh, cybersecurity folks told us, "Hey, keep that stuff. No one knows how to, no no one knows how to hack that anymore." So, um, so 
you know, in a funny way that led, I think, to people going, oh, why don't we keep it then? And, uh, and it's my data and no one can touch it. And so you go through all of those cultural barriers that that uh, persist. Um, but w without without bringing all of those systems together uh, and break it, we, we fundamentally tried to get it down to about three databases out of those 60 so that you could do the financial piece, you could do the, the talent management piece, and then you, you could do the, the, uh, the detailing piece uh, in, a different, uh, in different bins, but all of those systems would work together to, to, pull, them, to pull them in. So uh, I, I believe when I was leaving uh, active duty, N1 was still struggling to get that, those systems uh, brought together in a coherent way so that we could maximize the opportunity to, to be more efficient in the way we managed people throughout the, throughout the day. Uh, Admiral Chris Cavus here. So on the other end of, of recruiting is retention. And, you know, I mean, so you were in a long time, you had several decades in the Navy, like anybody who's lived, uh, lived for a while, you've seen a lot of things change. Um, Retention has gotten harder for everybody around the world, really, corporations, companies, anywhere. It's, easy, it's easier to train people than it is to grow experienced people, and you need to retain them. Is that, have you seen that becoming a growing problem in the Navy? Is there, were there things that you tried to do to retain better people that didn't work? Um, yeah. where, where do you see that? Yeah, Chris, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, so... I would describe it this way. I, I used to say that the economy was the gravitational force that impacted both recruiting and retention. Well, most people would say, oh yeah, of course. But, but the facts are when the economy is strong, it's very difficult to recruit and it's very difficult to retain. Young men and women have more options when there's a good economy. And when it's a poor, poor economy, just the opposite. A little easier to retain, a little easier to recruit. Uh, the last three years with COVID uh, and many other issues that came up during uh, the, those three years have, have really thrown a different kind of wrench into the problem in that it, ex it exposed a lot of, of the workforce out there to a different way to do work. If it wasn't manual labor or it wasn't, you know, kind of construction labor, those sorts of things, you could do a lot of things like we're doing it right here virtually. Uh, and, and that changed the dynamic. And somehow a bunch of the workforce has disappeared in the process. And, and it's a bit of an enigma to know where, where they all have gone and whether they're going to come back. Less so in the Navy, uh, in, in the armed services writ large, but we're starting in, 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 a, in a kind of an unfortunate way the economy getting tighter is making it should be making it easier to retain should be making it easier to recruit but i don't sense from reading uh what's being published out there right now that 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 is the case just yet uh it's recruiting is often especially the army recruiting numbers are usually the canary in a coal mine and as you know by reading a lot of the material out there, the Army's struggling uh, more so than the other services. That only means it's gonna be tough on the Navy and the, 
not too distant future. So what we tried to do with sale of 2025 was develop policies that made it, I wouldn't say easier, but develop more options for sailors and their commanding officers and their, and their superiors to, to, to give sailors the kind of needs, answer the kind of needs they, they had at whatever stage they were at. Uh, to make it easier for them to say, okay, I'm, I can stay in the Navy now. I, I want to stay because I can, I can go take care of my family. I can go get educated. Um, I can do some other things, but I can still stay on the team. Those policies have largely been effective over the last five or six years since they were, they've been implemented. But now they're up, they've, they've started to come up against this very tight labor market. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how well the Navy does in that environment in terms of retention. Hopefully, hopefully that answers your question. Well, does it, is it my question or is it just the Navy's question and the society at large, really? Sure. Um, switching gears um, now to something else. So warfighting, um, as you know, an, an eternal question about the U.S. military and the U.S. Navy is, can it fight? Is it ready to fight? Uh, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to answer until you actually are, you know, bullets are flying, things are blowing up and people are getting hurt. And up until then, who knows? So we're looking at this. I mean, as, as we're all well aware, um, the Russian conflict in, in Ukraine, um, Russia put out tons of videos right before February 24th, showing them blowing up endless things and lots of explosions, lots of shooting and boy, they looked really tough and everybody thought they were really tough and people thought the Ukrainians weren't going to fight very well. And then exactly the opposite turned out to be the case. And uh, so these, the Russians have not fought like the, like we have expected them to, or at least most people expected them to. The Ukrainians on the other hand are far tougher than a lot of people gave them credit for before the war started. So again, you know, what happens when the, when the stuff finally hits the fan is not always what people expect. When you see something like that, I mean, in terms of lessons learned, what lessons are there in the way this is played out? You know, the Russians have, have overwhelming superiority in so many cases, including naval, and people expected the, the, their Baltic fleet to have a, have a greater impact. They expected better uh, amphibious assaults, for that matter, expected to uh, Odessa would go by now. And uh, clearly, that clearly that hasn't happened. Um, they they don't seem to have been ready, even though they thought they were ready. What lessons do you do you see in this for people training to get ready to look at to to assess themselves? When I think about what I've read, and I only know what I've read, and listen to people who are assessing this on a daily basis when they talk it. A variety of different conferences and, and write about it. It certainly seems to me that if, you know, we, we get a lot of, we take a lot of heat for our acquisition systems, our, our processes, our system. Yet we generally produce really good stuff, albeit slow. The Russians have done, have produced what we thought most people thought was really good stuff, maybe a little faster. It turns out it wasn't very good stuff. 
uh, and they they didn't get it right. Uh, I'm reading about rockets and long range artillery and weapons that have new motors and new and new designations, but they don't have new sensors. They've got old gear inside in that stuff. So, you know, did we know that? Did we see it coming? I don't know. Um, doubtful. You can see everything that's going inside. But what we do know about the Chinese is they pretty much steal everything we've, we've got. Uh, and so if our stuff is good, they can probably do it at 25% of the cost and 25% of the time because they have all of that work already completed by our system, which takes years to develop. So that worries me a little bit because their capabilities are, are going to be strong. What's that mean about war fighting? Uh, at least we have a lot of men and women that have been in a fight over the last 20 years plus where Russia had a very limited number and it probably is reflected in the way they have fought, which is not only uh, one lesson learned here is if you can't motivate the team with the mission and the purpose of the fight, they're probably not going to give you everything they've got. They'll defend their own hide, but they, they won't necessarily fight as hard as those who are defending what they believe is their is their livelihood, like the Ukrainians are, with uh, less uh, less modern, if you will, capability. Although we are supplying them, and others are supplying them with some pretty good capability now, which is making them even more effective. Now the Chinese. On the other side, though, they haven't fought anything in a long, long time. They've certainly read and learned a lot about how we have fought and others have fought, those who have done well, those who have not done well. And that learning, um, you know, if they're doing it right, they're, they're, they're implementing it inside their exercises and training. Qu the key question for us is, have we learned from our own mistakes in our own uh, successes along the way and, and put that into training in a way that will ensure that we're going to be as good as we possibly can be if something were to happen. I still like our equipment advantage. I absolutely like our people advantage. Um, I'm less enthralled with our training advantage because I think we are much like the manpower system we operate in. Our training system is a bit uh, old generation as well. And it's, it began a modernization program under Ready Relevant Learning several years ago. And that continues today. And I don't know how far along they are, but they've come quite a bit, quite a, quite a ways here in the last three or four years. And I, I think that bodes well down the road. If we continue to invest in making the training relevant to what a sailor is experiencing on his or her platform, wherever they are in the fleet. And that, and that has not been the case in the past. That's very interesting. So with, with the Chinese, what do you think a lot of the commentators, a lot of the, a lot of the opinion making is overlooking with the Chinese? People talk an awful lot about stuff, but they usually along the same threads. What do you think people may be overlooking? Either in the threat that we're not getting ready for or some other way. Yeah, there's no real experience out there in this hypersonic domain. So 
that's that's an area that uh, we we need to continue to test and evaluate not only with our own uh, capability but what we believe the Chinese capability is. A uh, lot of great modeling and simulation going on along those lines, but you need real hardware to, to ultimately uh, get a, a clear picture of of just how well we would do against that capability. Space-based is uh, also uh, obviously with the space force now and, and the emphasis on that domain is relatively new in, in the, uh, the art of warfare. Uh, when you're talking 250 years of history here. So th that's probably an area that gets a lot of attention, but for the average sailor in the fleet, uh, and the average leader in the fleet, it's a bit of a, uh, a mystery, not really sure how it all happens, how it all comes together, what impact it has on, on uh, someone's platform in the fight and how do you how to respond and react to it. So those are things that we continue to learn in war game. And hopefully we will never have to experience it, but that would, that's going to be one that will create a lot of, uh, it'll create a lot of doubt because we haven't seen it before. Um, so, I mean, those, those are some of the things just off the top of my head that I would, I would say are, uh, we're not sure about the Chinese. One thing I, I, I do worry about on this though, we got real good in the eighties and nineties of saying, ah, the Russians were, we always thought they were 10 feet tall. Turns out they were not, Well, they proved it again. So it reinforces that notion that you know, came out of Ukraine. We ought not to be thinking along the same lines with the Chinese. Uh, if, if we, if we have that mindset that, yeah, you know, everybody's talking like they're 10 feet tall, but you know, like the Russians, they probably aren't. I think they're going to be a little more capable than the Chinese in, in some areas. The Russians weren't, uh, the Russians were pretty tall in a submarine force. Uh, Chinese, I doubt are anywhere near as proficient as the Russians. Uh, so, I mean, that's just another area that I would, you know, you got to balance the, the, what we believe are their strengths and their weaknesses, and then obviously plan accordingly. Amra, I'll ask one, one last question, and it, I'll, I'll try to connect a few of the dots that, that we've hit on. Um, you know, we started with people. We, we talked about, you know, having the right people uh, and the discussion that you and Chris just had about war fighting, I, I think, is extremely important. If you believe that, you know, either in high-end deterrence or conflict with the Chinese, you know, there is a high likelihood that we lose networks or we lose our traditional or at least recent traditional way of fighting where, you know, folks at the fleet level or in DC are communicating down to the units, we're, we're going to have to rely and trust on these unit commanders to uh, you know, carry out the missions that we've asked for them. A, a large part of the critique on some of the training that the Navy does or has forced on them is that it's very, very prescriptive, that it doesn't trust the unit level commander, the 0506 commander to kind of take that requirement and put it into action as he or she sees fit um, for their unit. Can you talk a little bit about 
kind of the stresses on the 05 and 06 commander as you saw as you were getting out of uniform and I know you still mentor and talk to a lot of you know your former staff that are in those jobs but the importance of that maybe in the context of what you just said about the Chinese yeah I mean there's no there's no doubt that my sense when I was CNP and certainly carried over into vice chief was we had way too many requirements on our 05 commanders and, and arguably our 06 commanders to comply with directives that were developed at higher headquarters. And, and a lot of it was necessary is, is absolutely the wrong word. It's the only word I can come up with. It was necessary in the eyes of those in higher headquarters. But, but when we looked at like post uh, 2017, uh, mishaps out in, in the Pacific with McCain and Fitzgerald, the amount of oversight into administrative type of um, training and uh, awareness was, was diluting the ability of a commanding officer to really focus on fundamental warfighting skills and bringing the crew together, getting ready to fight. I, I think they've made a, a turn in the right direction uh, I'm not out there now. I hope that that's the case, that COs are starting to feel more in control of their destiny when it comes to making sure their team is ready to go, ready to fight. I think there is always a risk that that as people reflect on things that have gone badly, uh, Bonham Richard and, and the collisions are just primary examples of this, but there are others. That, that we don't over tighten the screws on, com on complying with things and, and allowing our COs to operate more autonomously, which has really been the strength of the Navy. And to, to the question that you asked earlier, that if the lights go out, the networks go out, uh, advantage clearly to the United States Navy because of the way, the, the way our culture has been. That, and, and as long as we strengthen that culture, I think we've got we've got the right type of team that can go out and, and win a fight in an, in in a war that is clearly going to be filled with a lot of surprises and the fog of war will be generated. You need people who can think and act and feel trusted. And and that's that's going to be the key to success, in my view. So the more we can take off their plate to allow them to focus on war fighting and assess their ability to do that is really the most important aspect of uh, training, a, training a fleet that can be ready. Well, sir, thank you very much. I think that'll, that'll do it for our time right now. Uh, folks, as everyone uh, might be able to figure out, um, our guest today has been uh, retired Admiral Bill Moran, um, 38 years of service with the United States Navy, and we're very appreciative of you being on board today. So thank you, sir. Thanks, Chris. Now hear this. Now hear this. And now Mr. Cervello with some thoughts on whether or not there is shipbuilding capacity for growth in the U.S. Thanks, Chris. Let me share with you my nirvana for how a robust and capable Navy is conceived, argued for, funded, and ultimately built. In my ideal world, the Secretary of the Navy and Chief of Naval Operations would develop and publish a four-structure assessment telling the Congress, industry, and the public what type of Navy the country needs in order to help keep America safe and our interests protected. 
SECNAV and CNO would explain and defend their recommendations to the Congress, providing their best professional advice. The Congress would then balance their advice and recommendations with that of the administration's budget submission and would authorize and fund the building, modernizing, and maintaining of the Navy through the authorization and appropriations process. Based on the credible and consistent plans articulated by the Navy and approved by Congress, industry would grow and maintain the workforce and technical capability needed to meet those plans, all while balancing the interests of their Navy customer with that of their shareholders. Helping this process along are multi-year deals, good faith discussions, and candid testimonials that lay out a clear requirement that industry leaders can plan to and invest in. What's not helpful to the process are Navy leaders that constantly change their story, provide moving requirements, and spend more time telling key audiences what industry can't do instead of what they need them to do. This past week, CNO Admiral Mike Gilday once again publicly pushed back on the idea of growing the fleet because he believes America's shipbuilding industry doesn't have the capacity to meet an increase in the number of ships they build each year. I believe the CNO's approach is both inaccurate and unhelpful. We are at a crossroads of opportunity to build a joint force with the right capability and capacity to deter the Chinese, Russians, Koreans, and others. Excuses about why we can't do things deter no one. We need a CNO that proposes a cogent and responsible fleet architecture and building plan and then convincingly explains the risks associated with not meeting that plan. Admiral Gilday, please tell Congress and the shipbuilders what we need and then work with them to fund and build it. Let's not miss this important moment by telling us what we cannot do. Please tell us what we need to do to keep America safe. All right. Thank you, Chris. And folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.